Hi, this is Eva, and I'm calling from Alexandria, Virginia. Today I'm celebrating because I just accepted my first job post-grad. I'm going to be a politics breaking news reporter in Washington, D.C. Today's podcast was recorded at 1.06 p.m. on Wednesday, July 19th. Things might change by the time you hear it. All right, here's the show. Hey, maybe someone will be on the politics podcast one day. When we retire. Mara, I actually think I will probably retire before you do. Uh, I don't know. Well, <laughs> you know what? You never I know. I don't know. That's a good question. Hey there. It's the NPR Politics Podcast. I'm Susan Davis. I cover politics. I'm Mara Liason, national political correspondent. And Colin Jackson of Michigan Public Radio Network joins us today. Hey, Colin. Happy to be here. So state prosecutors in your home state of Michigan have charged 16 people with felonies in relation to a fake elector scheme to try to overturn the results of the 2020 election in the state. As a reminder, Joe Biden defeated Donald Trump in Michigan by a margin of about 154,000 votes. Colin, let's start here. Who are these 16 people? And I think we all need a refresher if you could take us back to December of 2020 and what they tried to do. Well, except for two of the defendants, these are the 16 people that the state Republican Party approved to be Michigan's Electoral College members had Trump won Michigan. Uh, they include a West Michigan city mayor, a Detroit suburb local clerk, and some Trump activists. But notably, you also see former state Republican Party co-chair and staunch Trump ally uh, Michonne Maddock. Obviously, Trump lost Michigan by over 150,000 votes. But the state alleges the 16 defendants still met inside the basement of the former state Republican Party headquarters to sign this memo, asserting themselves as the state's rightful Electoral College members. A pro-Trump crowd tried to submit that letter at the state capitol where the real electors were gathering, uh, but they were turned away. Um, still, the memo got submitted to Congress and the National Archives, according to the state. So, Colin, what exactly are these 16 people being charged with now? So there are eight felony charges uh, that each of the defendants face in total. Uh, they include forgery, election law forgery, and something called uttering and publishing, which is basically another specific form of forgery. Uh, the most severe of these, though, could lead to a 14-year sentence in prison. Michigan State Attorney General Dana Nessel uh, posted this video yesterday in which she speaks to the politics of this case and why she believed it had to be brought. Undoubtedly. There will be those who claim these charges are political in nature. But where there is overwhelming evidence of guilt in respect to multiple crimes, the most political act I could engage in as a prosecutor would be to take no action at all. Tell them what else is the state saying about this case? Well, for a long time, people here in general in government, you've seen a push for those who helped advance this false narrative about a stolen election to face legal consequences. Um, beyond these defendants, that includes lawyers who waged several lawsuits after the election. You may remember uh, the term Kraken uh, when it comes to that kind of scattershot strategy when it came to those lawsuits. As far as this case goes, though, um, Attorney General Nessel says the case is kind of open and shut and clear. Uh, their names appear on this memo that was submitted. Um, they're saying that parts of this memo were clearly false. Um, for example, an assertion that uh, they met in the Capitol when they signed this. Um, they were not allowed in the Capitol that day. Uh, the claim that they were the duly elected uh, and qualified electors for the state of Michigan, which they were not simply because their candidate lost. Mara, it seems increasingly clear if it wasn't already that the long shadow of 2020 is going to extend into the 2024 presidential race. 
There's no doubt about it. I mean, hundreds of people who rioted at the Capitol on January 6th have been indicted, many of them found guilty. Now you have these fake electors facing charges. Trump himself said on his social media site that he expects to be indicted in a federal case that he tried to undermine the the 2020 election. And Georgia is also looking at a similar fake elector scheme like the one you just heard about in Michigan, um, another attempt to subvert what the independent judiciary found to be a free and fair election. So Trump is facing a lot of legal problems, not all of them directly related to January 6th. He's under indictment in Manhattan on charges that he falsified business records to cover up hush money payments to a porn star. He already was found civilly liable for defamation and sexual abuse. He faces a federal charge that he uh, mishandled uh, top secret documents. So we're getting to a critical mass here. And I guess the big political question is, these individual indictments have not put a dent in his support among Republicans. Will the cumulative effect of them make a difference? One of the striking things, and we talked with Domenico about this just this week, how it hasn't affected his perception among voters, certainly the Republican base electorate. But it is still a point of fascination for me that no one running against him has been able to make any political hay against him as as his own rivals for the nomination. It's not working in any direction against him. That's the most incredible thing. I mean, with the exception of Chris Christie, who has tried – but he, his iron grip on the Republican base is intact. Now, he, I don't think this is helping him with independence, but when you see hypothetical poll matchups between him and President Biden, he's still a pretty strong candidate. So, Colin, where does this case go from here? Is, is it expected to take a long time, or what are the next steps in the process you're watching? Well, right now, no arraignment date has been set. Uh, I'm told from the Attorney General's office that a summons is going to be sent out uh, for when the defendants are supposed to appear uh, here in Ingham County for court uh, in court for that arraignment. Um, the investigation is also ongoing. So you could see more people be charged in connection with this fake elector plot. All right. Colin Jackson of Michigan Public Radio Network. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. All right. We'll take a quick break. And when we get back, we'll take a look at far right extremism in the U.S. And we're back with NPR correspondent Odette Youssef. Hey, Odette. Hey there. So you have some new reporting on white nationalist groups that are gathering under a banner of, quote, active clubs. Can you talk about what this is and what these groups are doing? Yeah, these are neo-Nazis who are organizing into decentralized cells all over the country with a focus particularly on the mixed martial arts scene. So um, they are doing uh, fitness training together, the point of which is to prepare for physical hand-to-hand combat with their you know, perceived ideological or political enemies. Um, and it's an idea that's been around in Europe for a while, but it really has only manifested here in the United States in recent years. And, you know, the reason that um, I'm drawing attention to it now is that in the last six to 12 months, we have seen um, these groups really venture offline into the real world, Mm. um, particularly in recent months at uh, public events uh, that are uh, centered around LGBTQ gatherings. This sounds a lot to me like the types of people who were drawn to Charlottesville, Virginia, to the Unite the Right rally several years ago. Is it sort of a similar type or group of people? 
Yeah, you know, in fact, the group that arguably started the active scene, uh, active club scene in the United States, uh, which was a Southern California crew called the Rise Above Movement, was actually documented at Charlottesville in 2017. Um, and now, you know, there's a federal court case uh, in California against some members of that group alleging their participation in the violence that occurred in Charlottesville. You know, it's it's interesting because um, you'd think that after the fallout of of Charlottesville, including the killing of Heather Heyer, who was protesting against the white nationalists that were gathering in that city, um, you'd think that those kind of groups would have gone underground. Um, but now what we're seeing is active clubs are spreading and they're attracting more members than they even had back then. And I think that's really troubling because it indicates that that violence is appealing to a larger swath of America than it had before. And that falls in line with polling that shows an increasingly radicalized political right in this country. Are these groups mostly white? Are they white supremacist groups? Yes. The active clubs, uh, they uh, extend their membership only to white people. Um, they are primarily uh, 20-something-year-old uh, young men um, that one researcher I spoke with described as uh, disenfranchised young men, so maybe guys who kind of don't hold much social sta- standing with their peers. Oh, Dad, I'm curious about this point because white nationalist politics have existed throughout American politics. But in this current iteration, it seems to be bigger than just about race and racism. As you mentioned, there's been a specific targeting of LGBTQ events and people. There also seems to be sort of a more nebulous uh, activism against ideology, against things like Antifa or liberalism that also seems to be animating these groups. These groups seem to have a broader focus than historically groups like the KKK or others that were largely focused on sort of race-based bigotry. And I think that's a really important thing to understand, because um, even when you look at the far right today, you'll actually find that there is some diversity with people that embrace hard right policies today. Um, And so how do we make sense of that? I think the way you just characterize it is correct. You know, we are seeing uh, many of these groups. In fact, the Rise Above movement, when it began in 2017, um, was targeting events in California that were that were gatherings of what they characterized as Antifa. So really going against what they were calling sort of the liberal woke left. Um, you know, it, what it really is, is mobilizations against liberal democracy or multiracial democracy. But it's not only about race, it's about politics as well. Mara, I mean, to be frank, this is an element of Donald Trump's Republican Party. The former president has very publicly and notably at times uh, either not condemned or seemed to have given winkish support towards groups that have sort of fueled some of this intolerance, the, his response to the events in Charlottesville were a sort of famous moment in his presidency. This is a movement that I think feels like it has some momentum in America Yeah, it right has now. support from very high places. Good people on both sides is what he said about Char- Charlottesville. Stand back and stand by is what he said about the Proud Boys. And we know statistically that if you look at violent extremist incidents, there are many, many more right-wing ones than left-wing ones. Odette, you had an interesting point in your reporting in which you said that uh, when anti-LGBTQ sentiment is heightened, as I 
think it is in the country right now, it can be an opportunity for extremism to spread in all forms. And I was struck by that because even just yesterday, I was watching a, a committee hearing on Capitol Hill go completely sideways between Republicans and Democrats fighting over LGBTQ-related amendments. You know, there's been uh, activity across the states of affecting transgender Americans. The debate over LGBTQ rights is really at the center of American politics right now. And it seems to me that maybe there's a bigger connection between these two things than I had previously thought. Yeah, that's absolutely right. You know, the, what happens in the extremist playbook is that when they can find, um, when they can exploit an opportunity to um, show up in alliance with other people who may not be as extreme as they are, but um, hold a similar position on one single issue, they will show up because that is an opening for them. We saw that um, in the last, you know, three years with um, the Proud Boys again, how they started showing up at local school board meetings and um, city council meetings against um, COVID mandates and vaccine mandates. You know, that was something that they found common cause with moms, um, just regular moms. <laughs> and um, they were able to form in-person alliances there and uh, sort of normalize uh, what were at that time more extreme ideas. Odette, as always, thank you for coming on the podcast with your reporting. Thanks for having me. That is it for us today. I'm Susan Davis. I cover politics. I'm Odette Youssef. I cover domestic extremism. And I'm Mara Liason, national political correspondent. And thanks for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast. 